when we talk about grace, and, and as Christians, we, 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 we talk a lot about grace, but we, we, we insert this other word alongside it, and it goes, grace equals forgiveness. And when we at Easter, it's really easy to remember that it's about forgiveness, that Jesus died for us to give us forgiveness. Now, there's a point to this in that what I really felt this morning is I want to talk about uh, what it means to live in the light of what Jesus did and what happened at Easter. And in the Old Testament, you see, before Jesus ever came along, you could get forgiveness. That's something we don't often remember, that you could get forgiveness. You, you, what you did is you uh, repented and you divvied up your money and you bought your chicken or your bull or your goat or whatever it was, and you took it and you offered it as a sacrifice, and that blood that was shed in the sacrifice gave you forgiveness. The problem was, it was temporary. It just covered your sin for a while. It made you feel okay for a while. And alongside that, there was this thing called the law, which was a whole load of rules to try and stop you doing stuff wrong again. Because the law was given to stop or constrain bad behavior or sin. So in the Old Testament, you could get forgiven. So why did Jesus come? In the New Testament, Jesus came and he gave us forgiveness permanently. And you didn't get that forgiveness by rocking up at Market Square in Cambridge with your bull under your arm to get it sacrificed. You got that forgiveness by a completely different way. And that was called faith. What's faith? Faith, quite simply, is believing that when Jesus died, he died for you. He died for your sins. He died for what you did wrong. Now, why am I telling you all that? Well, I'm telling you it because of this. Forgiveness is bought at the cross. Forgiveness is bought on that day we celebrate as Good Friday by Jesus' death. From that point on, forgiveness was available by faith. And yet there's a, there's a really strange thing that the Apostle Paul says. He says that our faith is in vain and we're fools if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Now, if Jesus had already got his forgiveness at the cross, which he had done, why does Paul say that? Why, why would he say that it's not about just what happened at the cross? The really important thing is that Jesus comes back and he's raised from the dead. Because that, that goes against it. And this is our problem in the church. This is why we don't move in the power and the life that God gave us. This is why... People spend decade after decade just stuck with the same stuff they've always been stuck at because they get stuck at the cross. They get stuck, at, I'm forgiven and I'm, go I'm going to heaven, but it doesn't change me. It doesn't change me. 
Because it's not just the cross, it's the resurrection that we need to get hold of. There's something that happens that changes us. And we need to live not in the light solely of the cross, but of the resurrection to a new life. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've found really exciting, I don't know how many of you uh, look on Facebook um, or, or see the Facebook feeds from the church. If you, do, if you don't get those feeds, go to the page, like it, and you'll get the feeds. But one of the things that we've been doing over the last few weeks is putting up testimonies about what's been happening with uh, people in, in the church who've uh, seen God move and do miracles. So there's miracle testimonies on there. There's salvation testimonies on there. There's, there's people in this room now who've been the subject of testimonies where they've got saved or where they've got healed. And uh, I just wanted to share this one well, one or two from this week. There's several this week, but I just wanted to share this. Um, I don't know, but a few of uh, members of Faith Life go out on, on a Thursday and uh, follow where they believe God's leading them, and they pay for people. And this is the, the testimony from this week. Um, oh, actually, they went on Wednesday this week, so if you gone on Thursday, you'd have been a day late. On Wednesday, we met a guy from the streets called Alan. He was an Australian, and basically, he uh, was sat there, and he was playing his guitar. He had his guitar, but his, his guitar strings were all broken. Uh, and so they went up to him, and following the leading of the Holy Spirit, they asked him if he had any pain in his body. And he showed them his hands. And his hands were all right across the knuckles and the skin and things. It was all it wasn't just cracked, it was open wounds on his hands. So where he'd been playing out in the cold, I think, <laughs> it, it got infected and, and these had become like open wounds and, and cracks. And all his skin o over his hands was cracked. So they, they asked him, would they like them to pray for him? So they, they did pray for him. And uh, it, sa it says here, um, where for some unknown reason, faith rose up, and suddenly I grabbed his hands. Usually we ask if we can lay hands on out of respect, but I grabbed them anyway. And we placed the, our hands on his back. We commanded the pain to leave and for, that, for him to move his hands, which he did, and he said most of the pain had left. So we said, that's not good enough. Jesus will take it all and continue to command the pain to leave. Then, right in front of our eyes, the cracks began to seal up. At this point, Alan fell forwards towards us under the power of the Spirit. When he stood up again, we looked at his hands. All the cracks but one had sealed up and all the pain had left. You see, we, live, on, we live not just in forgiveness. We live in resurrection life. You know... One of the things that, that frustrates me is, well, it frustrates me even more this year, because if you look on what's on TV, anything to do with Easter, there isn't. There's none of those Easter films that, you know, I grew up watching. Nothing. You know, you, you, what's the highlight of East Good Friday? Pointless. And you go like, okay, well, that says a lot, doesn't it? But 
one of the things that used to, used to really frustrate me is that we used to focus so much on the cross, we forgot the victory and the resurrection that had been won. And because of that, we live in this place where we're constantly facing our own guilt and shame. And we don't move on from that, and that's what traps us. That's why we can't break out of that previous lifestyle. Because we're constantly in the place where we're looking at what is wrong with us. Instead of knowing what Christ has done in us. And it's what he's done in us that sets us free. It's what he's done in us that heals. It's what he's done in us that changes things. It's what he's done in us that brings life. Now, this woman that we've been looking at in, in the story of Hosea, Goma, she needed more than forgiveness, didn't she? Because every time Hosea forgave her, she went back into what she'd been doing before. She needed more than forgiveness. What she needed was change. She needed change. But how do you get past your past? When your past has molded you, when it's driven you, when it's shaped you, how do you get past your past? And that's why Jesus had to come, not just to give us forgiveness on a permanent basis, but so we could get past our past. Now, James, uh, he says this. Um, so, yeah, go to the verse on James. And, he, and he's talking about what goes on inside us. What's the problem? And he says this, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by what? His own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full-blown, produces death. So, the stuff that is producing death in our life ultimately comes from sin, either our own or others. Or, or that we live in this fallen world. But it's producing death. But the sin, you see, the forgiveness deals with the sin. But the sin isn't the problem. The sin is the symptom of the problem. The problem is the desires that have got a hold of us that when we get led into them produces the sin. And it's like, when we, when we just talk about forgiveness, it's like going to the doctor and getting something that treats the illness and makes you feel better, but doesn't actually solve the problem. It just treats the problem. And so, God had to do something about our desires. He had to do something that would change the situation. Otherwise, we... We could have all the forgiveness and we seek forgiveness and we have salvation and we have eternal life, but we're stuck in the mess that we were. And that's what happened to uh, Goma. You see, it takes a lot to overcome shame. It takes a lot to overcome guilt. It takes a lot to overcome hurt. It takes a lot to overcome self-hate. It takes a lot to change. It takes a lot to, to actually have a new life. You know, we talk a lot about freedom and, and how Jesus sets us free. And thank God he sets us free. But it comes by us having new life. It comes by resurrection power. Not just the cross, but the coming to new life, to rebirth, to change. 
You see, willpower isn't enough because it doesn't get us past the root of the problem. Trying harder isn't enough because eventually we'll keep falling back on those same things that have got us. And, you know, that's why crying, you can have very genuine repentance, crying and weeping, but unless we get a hold of this new life and new power in the life that Jesus gave us, we'll keep on crying and weeping because we won't be set free. And we'll see that, that thing where every week we're, we're going through the same things, crying and weeping and truly sorry for what's going on in our life. And yet there's no change. Because the change comes not just from the, the forgiveness, but it comes from the new life. Because something has to change in us, and that's our desires. What we need is new life, new heart, resurrection of our hearts. We need a, re, a rebirth of our hearts. And that's what God said he'd give us in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to give you a new heart. That's it in Ezekiel. It's not on the slides. In Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 33, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new heart in you. It's not going to be like that stone-cold heart you've got now, that hard heart, that one that leads you into sin and makes a mess of your life. I'm going to give you a soft heart, and then I'm going to write myself on it. I'm going to write myself on your heart. You see, God, now this is really important. It's all really important, but this is, this is like a takeaway. God hasn't just saved you from something. He's rescued you to be something. He hasn't just saved you from something, in which case, if that was the case, we can just sit here, we can come along on a Sunday morning, week after week, we can have a nice little time, and we can go on, carry on with our own lives, and all wait till we get to heaven. And some of us might conclude that's a bit futile, throw ourselves in the front of a bus and get there a bit earlier. Because if that's all there is about life, then what do we live for? We're not just saved from something, we're saved to be something now. Saved to be something now. Why, why does God do that? Why, does he, why is he chosen to do it this way? Because he could have just wrapped up the universe. He could have said, well, it's just too bad. I'm going to wipe the whole lot of them out. I'm going to start again. And let's hope we don't get Adam and Eve this time. I'm going to start again. But he didn't. Because his love for us wouldn't let him. His love for us drove him to die for us rather than get rid of us. And that's, that's amazing, isn't it? That he could have just done that. He could have just started again. But his love overruled that. And, and sometimes God has this like, this issue and he goes, well, I wish I hadn't done that now because it, it's not going well at the moment. But he still loves us so much that he come through. You see, we have this love and, and we, we, we equate love with a funny sort of feeling. And the problem with that funny sort of feeling is it all goes really well until things aren't going really well. And we, we, we tend to love each other because we're humans on the basis of uh, we've got things in common, uh, you do nice things for me, you care for me, you're, you're a person that I can rely on and 
you've done all the things that, that really tick my boxes. So I love you. Well, what happens when you're not ticking my boxes? What happens when you, the, the, you're not giving me what I want anymore? And sadly, for, for in, in our society now, we see the product of that going wild. We see how, how marriages fall apart because they're, they're based on a love which is essentially about meeting my needs. And when you're not meeting my needs, it, it goes cold. And, and we start to harden towards each other. And then things, if we don't deal with it, gets worse. And the reason we don't understand sometimes God's love is it's so different from that. It's totally undeserved. It's, it, it doesn't rely on me meeting God's box ticking at all. It doesn't even equate on that scale. It's a different kind of love that is given because of who God is, not of who I am. I don't have anything to do with it except I'm the object of his love. I can question his decision, but I'm still the object of his love. And it's that that makes us free. Because as we know that, it gives us the security to know that this is a safe place to be. It's a safe world to be. It's okay to be who we are. And it's okay because God's changing us and helping us be who we're to become. Because we're safe to be someone. You see, there's some things that we say about God's love. And the most common one, if you've been around churches for any length of time, is that God loves you in spite of yourself. Because we're kind of aware of our flaws, aren't we? And, and if we're not aware of our flaws, what we'll do is we'll go and find a pastor who'll tell us all our flaws, because that's what pastors are trained to do, tell you your flaws, isn't it? Well, it seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? Um, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying not to be that pastor. You know, I try to avoid all that formal training and not be that pastor. Because it is true that God loves me in spite of who I am. And he loved me in spite of who I was. Five years, ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago. That kid that used to steal things. That kid that just by fortuitously going on holiday, managed to avoid ending up in Borstal when all his mates set fire to a train. You know, that, that kid that was there, God loved in spite of who I was. That's why he pursued me. But I think it's really sad if we stop there. Because that's not the entirety of God's love. That's not the entirety of grace. Grace and God's love doesn't just love you in spite of who you are. It delights in who you are. It's like, you know, like, we might manage to love somebody in spite of themselves. Parents are really good at loving teenagers in spite of themselves. And if you're not really good at it, after a while, you have to get good at it as parents of teenagers. But 
God takes it a step further. He goes, I actually made you to be you. And I kind of like you because you're exactly who I made you to be. And, and God's love isn't just in spite of ourselves. He delights in ourselves. And every time we discover a bit of who we truly are, rather than the mess that sin and those desires have made of us, he gets excited because he's going, yes, they're getting it. They're realizing, they're starting to see who they really are. And, and, and they can share in my delight in who they are because we're getting somewhere. You see, God's love isn't just about getting to heaven one day because you were forgiven 2,000 years ago. God's love is transformational love. It's a love that transforms you. Let's have a look at this from the story of Hosea and Gomer. You, you know, I haven't time to go through the whole story, but basically God has said to Hosea, who's a prophet, to marry this prostitute, uh, unfaithful woman who's having kids all over the place to other men, and as an example to how he feels and his love towards Israel. And so each time he, he describes to uh, Gomer what, what is going wrong, at the same time he says, this is what I'm going to do to put it right. So in um, chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. The Bible is really, uh, you might not see it sometimes when you read Paul's letters, but he's really economical on words. And you've got to really see the words. You've got to see what he's saying here. That He's saying, guys, we, we had a relationship and you messed it up. And, and you became not my people. You weren't following me anymore. You were going after all these other gods and other things. And you were uh, using your talents in uh, ways that weren't worthy. And you were behaving in worthy ways. And you became not my people. So my solution to that, guys, is not to make you my people. Because you're no good at it. You're really rubbish at being my people. Because being my people did nothing to solve your problem. All you had was a gang. And you op opted in and out of that gang depending on how you feel like it. So we're not going to do that one again because that really didn't help you, did it, guys? So what we're going to do is we're going to do something extreme. Because I'm God and I do extreme. I do some things from nothings. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to change the basis. I'm going to do something one day that is going to be so incredible that you're not going to be bothered about being my people because you're going to be my kids. Can you see the difference? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 says this. And it shall be in that day that, what's that day? That day is Easter Sunday. That day is the day that makes it all possible. That is resurrection life being released on the planet. In that day, says the Lord, you will call me husband and no longer call me master. Why is that? Again, extreme. God, 
How did I relate to my people? I related to my people on basis of I was the boss, these were the rules, because that's the only way we could keep things in check. That's the only way that anybody could exist on this planet, that people obeyed me. Now, from Easter, the basis changes. We're not in obedience stuff anymore. We're in married stuff. We're in relationship. We're in getting to know each other. We're in sharing hearts. We're in sharing lives. Extreme. Change the basics. That's what happens Easter Sunday. That's why this is so powerful. That's why we need the resurrection, not just the crucifixion, because it changes the basis that we operate on. You see, God does extreme things. Because the only way of solving an extreme problem is to do something extreme. How do you solve something that is killing you? You cut it out. You cut it out. The surgeons remove it from your body. Extreme solution to get rid of that desire problem. I'll change your desires. How am I going to change your desires? I'm going to take out your heart and give you a new one. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to give you life and I'm going to raise my son from the dead and that's going to release life on this planet. And so that's how I'm going to do it. So what he does is this. And I'll, I'll pick three examples. Let's, he, he, he does things that take you from one extreme to another. Um, the first thing he does is he takes you from death to life. We, we're good on that one, aren't we? That I, I'm, I'm no longer dead, but I'm alive. We sing that a lot, don't we, those sort of things. Death to life. How does that work? How, how can I illustrate that? Well, let me illustrate it like this. Um, several years ago, I went to the United States for a conference. And <coughs> it was one I was paying for for myself. So, therefore, I didn't fly business class. I was still working at Deloitte. And when flew with Deloitte, you got business class. But this, I'm in economy. And I've, I've got, I've got picked my seat. I've got a good seat. think, doing great. And I'm all settled. I'm in my seat. And then this uh, guy starts walking down the aisle with, with his bag and stuff. When I say walking, he was going. <laughs> I'm thinking, he's going to sit somewhere else, isn't he? <laughs> no, he's in the seat next to me. You know how sometimes you sit next to people on the plane and, and they have no idea where the armrest begins and ends? He had no idea where the row of seats began and end. And it, so he, he squashes himself in and he, he's sort of hanging over the armrest and he, and he settles himself in. Now, this, after the, the shock of that, the first thing I notice is this guy has a problem. Girls will recognize this problem. They call it man smell. You know, we call, guys, we recognize it. It's the smell in a football changing room or a rugby changing room after the match before anybody's watched. And he sat there. And the next thing he does is he gets his pornographic magazine out, starts chuckling and pointing at things and showing me pictures. And I'm thinking, we haven't even taken off yet. I'm thinking, oh, God, help me. God, help me. What do you want to do? And he goes, oh, I'd love to talk to you, mate, but I'm so tired. <laughs> now, that would have been good, him falling asleep. There. Except his armpits are now up next to my face. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, what do I do? And I'm thinking, like, 
where did I put the deodorant? Did I put the deodorant in the band luggage? Or is it? Because if I, if it was out, I could get it out and perhaps help him, <laughs> like do a bit of a sneaky squirt, you know. And then I thought, you see, that's the problem. That deodorant would have covered stuff for a while. It wouldn't solve the problem. What that guy really needed was a power hose. <laughs> you know, one of those that you use for clear, cleaning your pass. That's what he really needed. The point's this. Jesus doesn't just cover something up. He, um, you know... What he died for wasn't just about bringing a bit of niceness into the world. It wasn't just about making things a little bit better and, and a little bit more bearable. We are in more desperate need than that guy was because we don't even know how much our sin stinks. We are in need of a power hose to get rid of what we've got. And that power hose is called the resurrection. It changes things. It kills what was there and brings new life so that we are a pleasing fragrance. I just thought that one. It didn't go down well, did it? You see... Grace doesn't just rescue, from, rescue you from somewhere. It leads you to somebody. It doesn't just rescue you from somewhere. It leads you to somebody. And, and we, we become carriers of that life of the person that we've been led to. We become carriers of the life of Jesus. I got a text yesterday from... Uh, Gemma, and she'd seen some stuff advertised on the internet about some guys who were doing this thing in Nottingham about some going out and praying and they got a big group of people together to go and pray out on the streets. And so she felt led by the Holy Spirit, having seen this, to get in a car, drive into Cambridge, get on a train, go all the way to Nottingham and join into this thing. And I go like, how many of you went? I just went on my own. I was led by the Spirit, and I went on my own. And she went, and she ends up playing for two guys um, on it was skateboard kids, and one of them's come off his skateboard and mangled himself up, and he's carrying all sorts of injuries. They've, they've all healed up, but he's still in a lot of pain because it's not healed properly. And uh, she ends up praying for them, this, this, this skateboard guy, and all the pain goes. And so she said would, to his mate, would you like me to pray for you? Have you got anything? Yeah, I've got this pain, I've got this pain. Would you like me to pray for you? No, you're not praying for me. You see, some people will receive that new life and be healed and set free and changed and, 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 and whatever, and other people will reject it. But it's new life that's on offer. We have that extreme offer of moving from death to life. But it's not just life one day in heaven. It's life now in all its fullness that we are meant to walk in. We, we are meant to be with Christ and carry that life. Now, the second thing that Jesus does for us, uh, this resurrection does for us, is we move from orphans to being adopted. Remember that thing from 
the, the previous verse about moving from being, uh, what was it, people to sons and daughters. Um, we kind of have a picture about what adoption is, in, don't we? That, that you uh, go and you adopt and it's a little child and they come and be a member of your family. And I was thinking, well, what happens to those children that don't get adopted? You can read extreme examples of what happened under regimes in Romania and Bosnia and things where children uh, just lived in orphanages, been neglected. But what happens in our society to kids who stay orphans for quite a long time? And there's a lot of, as you imagine, because we care about our society, there's lots of research in the UK and in America about what traits orphans exhibit. And one of, the, one of the things, the first main thing that they exhibit is alienation. In that they, um, I'll just make sure I'm quoting it right. They, they basically, because they don't have any parameters to operate to and any stability, they reject the values that we accept in society. They don't feel part of society. They don't feel that they fit. They don't feel that they connect. And that produces something else in them. There's, remember, there's a chain reaction from desire to the end point. That produces something else in them. And they call that, because they're scientists, they can't say anything simply, the locus of control. And basically what that means is you get one of two extreme reactions. Because these kids feel like they, they, there is no security around them, they, try to, they, they become extreme control freaks or they just give up and let life happen to them. And it produces those inbuilt traits. But the main thing it produces, and this is consistent when kids are orphans for quite a long time, is it produces hostility. And this hostility is a reaction that they use as a protective mechanism because they have no other protection. And that, that hostility manifests itself. And... Uh, Basically, the, the, the last thing that happens is that as that begins to manifest in itself and they see that that, that doesn't work, they, they, they lose more and more self-esteem. Scientists call it self-degradation. And, and that's what being an orphan produces. And God knew that that's what it produced in mankind in that we felt fatherless. We, we were always intended to have God as our father. And we, but we weren't part of the family. We, we cut ourselves off from the family and we became some sort of people that gathered around him and, and occasionally worshipped him and had a good time and did what he said. But we saw him as this hard taskmaster. And so God had to do something to take away that image of him to get us into a place where he could put us back together again. And you see, when you, when you adopt... Um, Young, it's different from adopting old. I want to show you an example. Uh, nobody else in the world can show you this example and talk about it like I do. Um, can we have a picture of the family? Anybody any idea who they are? Anybody like to guess who they are? Pardon? They are, they are families that appear regularly with oodles of children. Uh, they, 
At the time of that picture, they had 18 children. One's not on it. Uh, they are just about to have their 19th child. So about every year or 10 months or 11 months or whatever it is, they appear in the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail and the picture appears there and they're tracking them on a TV program. This family are called the Radfords. He's called Noel, she's called Susan. When I was a kid, there was um, one of my cousins called Colin. And Colin, for reasons that I never found out, decided one day he was going to leave his parents, who, who lived in Lancaster, and come and live with my nana, his nana, in Kendall. And so he did. He'd be about 14 at the time. And he lived there till he was married. He just upped sticks <laughs> and went and lived with his nana. And I was baffled by this because we used to go around and I, I used to go around with my dad and we'd take the dog out for a walk. And so I knew Colin really well. When Colin got married, they couldn't have children. So they adopted. Susan Radford was called Susan Baines before she got married. She is my half-cousin. She is Colin's adopted daughter. She was adopted at a really, like, few weeks old. And so, and she knew as she grew up she was adopted. Her husband was adopted at a few weeks old. And they decided that what they wanted to do was to give the love that they'd been given because they knew that they'd been taken into a family and saved from something that would have been so much worse if they hadn't had the love of my cousin and his wife. And so they decided that they were going to have kids. Basically, they had the first kid when she was 14, obviously not married. Uh, people said, oh, you know, you need to get rid of it. It'll never last, all that sort of stuff. They've been married now, uh, I think it's about 27 years. Um, we have a 19th child on the way. Um, sometimes when I put that on, on, the, on the screen, I've shown it once or twice before, and people go, they're the benefits grounders. No, they are clever people. They, they, they feed and provide for themselves. How did they do that? What would you do if you had 18 kids and the 19th on the way? You'd have a bakery business. <laughs> That's what they have. And all the kids who are old enough work in the bakery business. They get through seven kilograms of potatoes per meal. That's 14 pounds of potatoes per meal. But the point is this. When you're adopted and loved in a family, it changes you. It makes you want to love too. And it helps you to love too. And that's what Jesus did for us. You see... Not many of us adopt older children. Some people do, but when you do that, it's <coughs> I, I've just incredible admiration for people who adopt older children because they've already been hurt. They're already carrying the weight of words spoken over them. They're already ca carrying that rejection, and it takes a whole lot more love to put them back together. But in Jewish tradition, when you got adopted, people didn't get adopted as babies. They got adopted as grown-ups often. 
with all their baggage. People who adopted in Jesus' time and in Paul's time tended to adopt somewhere from early teens up to mid-twenties because they didn't have heirs. And basically, when you adopted, the person you adopted took on and inherited everything. They got everything. That was the point of the adoption. They got to share in the whole inheritance. And, and so when God adopted us, when he gave us new birth and brought us into his family by the power of the resurrection, he gave us that. Now, the really exciting thing, I think, and the really exciting thing for me is that when he did that, it just, I, I'm, I was thinking about this this week, and it just dawned on me, and I was looking at this picture, and I thought, nobody adopts a child they don't want. You have your pick. So God, when he adopted us, wanted us. He wanted us. He went out of his way to get us. He, he, he died to reach us. He died to get us because he wanted us. And he didn't just want us. He adopted us as adults. So he took us on with all the stuff. He said, with all my stuff, you can be part of the family. And, and now that changes things for me because, because I'm his kid, because I'm his child, he's the provider. He's, I, I'm, he's dad, I'm son. He's the provider. He's the one that, that is responsible for me. He's the one I can look to. He's the one I go to for advice. He's the one that, that is cleverer than I am. He's the one that's wiser than I am. He's the one that's been around the block six times more than I have. He's the one that knows where to buy seven kilogram bags of potatoes when I need them. He's the guy. And I'm his kid. And I'm adopted. And he wanted me. And he knew exactly who I was when he took me on. And he delighted in that. And he said, I still pick you. I still choose you. You're still adopted in my family. You're still my kid. You still get the inheritance. You still get everything. Because I love you just like you are. Now, that would be kind of cool. In fact, that would be really, really cool, wouldn't it? In fact, that is really, really cool, isn't it? But God being God doesn't stop there. Because he did something even more amazing. Because he's royalty. He's king of kings, lord of lords. So you get adopted into a royal family. He's not just any old dad. You know when, um, you know when they go like, where were you on that day? Like I remember where I was when uh, the twin dowers uh, came. I remember where I was because it was important for me on the day David Bowie died. Okay, a little thing. But one of the things that most of us will remember, me should remember where we were on the day was what the royal wedding. No? Did you not go to your street party? Did you not have your little bunting hung up? Oh, you heathens. Okay, well, perhaps we don't all remember where we were on that day. Anyway, you, you, you all get the picture, don't you? Like, big pomp, all the crowds out. This commoner called Kate Middleton is heading off to church where she's about to get married. And as she gets married... What happens? She's no longer the commoner Kate Middleton. 
She's the royal princess, her royal highness, the Duchess of Cambridge. She's royalty. She has a change of identity. Remember what he said, you'll no longer call me Martha, but you'll be married to me. And, And it's that change of identity that is just incredible. You see, with Kate Middleton, she, what she gets, she gets, uh, she gets the nice dresses, she gets the photo shoots, she gets, she gets the castles to play with, um, she gets the horses, she gets the the the, the uh, what do we call them? Um, ambassadorial tours. She gets the royal functions. She gets the banquet. She gets to wander around with with all this gold surrounding her. She gets just an inheritance that we can't even dream of. And yet that inheritance is tiny compared to ours. And so often we spend so long looking at who we were, we forget that we're now royalty. That we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And what's so incredible about that is that God says, you inherit everything that is mine. He said, I have seated Jesus in heavenly places, far above all principality, power, uh, and authority. And then he says, and I sat you down next to him. That is the truth of who we are. We are above all authority, all principality, all power, all evil, all wrong. We we haven't just got got a a quick fix cover up for a mess, we have been transferred and we are royalty. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We, we, We walk this earth and we have the power to change lives. We have the power to heal bodies. We have the power to deliver. We have the strength to set people free. It's who we are. It's not something we can obtain. It's who we are. I mean, just, just in my, I'm just like, I was getting so excited when God was talking to me about this this week. It's like, wow, that kid who used to steal comics in the newsagents is now a king. How cool is that? That kid that was, was just, would have set fire to the train if he'd been there. He doesn't have to do it. He, he's walking around in palaces with their own fires. You know, it's, everything that gets thrown against me. He's smaller than he is. Everything that comes against me, he's my vindicator. Everything that that challenges what he wants to do in his kingdom, he will stop it and bring about what he wants. And he's given that to me, and he's given it to you, and he's given it to every single person in this room who knows him and loves him. Because it's who you are. So when we, when we come to Easter and we look at, go, well, I'm forgiven and I've got eternal life and I'm going to heaven one day, doesn't that make it really small? Because, yes, that's what happened on the Friday, but Jesus worked on it for three days. And at the end of it, I get new life, I get adoption, I get family, I get royalty, I get authority, I get power, I get him with me, I get his just like being my father and being there is my counsel, my wisdom, my strength. It's a whole new ball game. 
He died on the Friday and on the Sunday he rose again to life. And on the Sunday when we give our lives to him, we rise again. We rise again not to be a cleaned up version of who we are. Not to be some like covered over with some nice deodorant to make us nicer people. We get to be different people who are far above any authority, principality, power. I find it so sad that the church settles at Good Friday and does not live as a people of power. I don't have the answers for everything, but I have a dad who can do everything. I don't even know how to do anything on my own. Not that would count, anyway. But he knows how to do everything. If it had been me, and man had messed up so much, I would have done what he wanted to do on a few occasions, which is to... You know, sometimes the Bible shows God questioning himself, like, have I made the right decision here? God has conversations with himself, all three of him. And he goes, and he reaches the conclusion he made the right decision, but it's not without question. He could have just wrapped it all up and started again. It said at one point, God repented of having made man. Because he just had it. He just like... I poured everything into them and they were still walking away. But he didn't. He couldn't do it because he loved you too much. And if you'd been the only person around, he'd have done it still. He'd still have died. But more importantly, he would have risen again to new life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.